0: following audio is from a sermon series called Rebuilding the Ruins. The story of Ezra and Nehemiah begin with the people of God in Babylonian exile due to their unfaithfulness. The God of heaven, who is faithful to his promises, then stirs up and empowers his people to walk anew in faithfulness and rebuild the ruins. For more information about Sacred City Moline, please visit scmoline.com. You may be seated. Hey, good morning once again, welcome to Sacred City Church. My name's Sam. I'm the pastor here. I'm glad to have you with us. Um, as I'm looking out, it's been a couple weeks since I've been up here, and uh, I'm excited to be back in the pulpit. Uh, I, I, I have a tendency to get a little long-winded when I take a little bit of time off, but I'm going to try my best to do what the Lord's put before us here and uh, on our time. I do want to say that from this view, uh, many of you are, are looking more um, plump than, than you were 30 days ago. And I mean that in the most flattering way. I'm talking about spiritually plump. Um, as you know, uh, our, uh, you're killing it with your New Year's goals and working out. You guys, and f- physically, you're very lean. Spiritually, you're looking plump. Uh, we set out this year with... Um, A mission to feast, to flourish, be people of the Word, daily in our words, studying the words, meditating on the Word, letting God's Word form us and reform us according to the Word of God, and so we are on the brink of a new month. we told every every day, we have a chapter a day set aside, a a church-wide Bible reading plan that we're making our way through. And uh, January is just a day from expiring, um, and so we have for you bookmarks with the next month's of, of scripture reading. The reading plan still available up on the Dwell Bible app. You can find it there and keep working your way through that. But there are physical copies here. I know many of you have enjoyed actually opening up your physical Bibles every morning or every day whenever you get that chance to sit down and, and read God's word. Um, now I, I do want to encourage you. Let, let's take a next step here from going from from spending like three to five minutes in the Word of God of reading that chapter to I want to invite you into ten minutes. Of day of, of study and meditation. Um, we talked about this. We hosted a, a Bible 101 class a couple weeks ago um, with some tools and, and, and tips, just like best practices of how to make the most of our, our Bible reading time. Many of you were in the room for that. If you weren't able to make it for that, uh, there is a podcast uh, on Sacred City Vision Drip Podcast. You can find that Spotify, uh, Apple Podcasts. Um, that can help you kind of think through, how do I make the most of this Bible time? I'd love to invite you into that, and, and we just go take that next step from from reading a chapter to studying and meditating and reading our Bible uh, for growth. Um, I'm going to get right to it here this morning, because um, we are in the book of Ezra. Uh, we, we are setting up this year. We're going to spend time in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. We're beginning the first half of the year in um, Ezra. It's a, it's a series that I've been excited for 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 well over a year, um, because this book is an exciting book. Um, it's a compelling book. It's a book about building something magnificent. Um, and as, as epic as this book can be, and, and just sort of like you kind of get swept up into um, the novelty of it, there, there's actually an often overlooked component, a key ingredient of these stories through Ezra and Nehemiah that get overlooked quite frequently. And part of the story, the narrative, is this sort of rise and fall and rise and fall. There's this, there's this anticipation of promise, and they're on the brink of something epic, and some, God is on the move, and he's doing something very cool, and all of a sudden, there's this letdown. There's some disappointment. There's, there's an anti-climax here, and we see it repeatedly throughout the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. It looks like it's going trending up and to the right, and then, boom, something drops, and today we kind of come across the first um, first taste of anticlimax that we'll see. Things are looking promising as people are moving back to Jerusalem to rebuild the ruins. They've got momentum, they've got high hopes, and then we see some disappointment. Now, As time elapsed in life, we become more and more familiar with this experience of, of this momentum, this trajectory, these high hopes, and then... Seems like the bottom falls out. I, I, I'm reminded. I, I think as I was thinking about this, one of my first experiences with this um, was probably as a kid, I'm 10, 11 years old, about the age uh, around Christmas time, um, where you 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 see all these advertisements on television for the coolest new toy, and it's doing stuff that's like. Define defying gravity. It's like, I don't know how physics works in this commercial, but that is a cool-looking toy. The packaging is tight, and you get that cool toy that you've been hoping for, and it's like just a bunch of cheap plastic from China, right? It's not at all what, what you had hoped that it would be. And, and that sort of thing kind of reemerges as we make our way through life. These unmet longings, these desires, maybe even for a good thing, and, and what actually materializes sometimes, not all the times, but sometimes, kind of lets us down whether that's within our career we had aspirations for this kind of a career which would launch us into this kind of life and and then boom you know there was a turn somewhere in the road with maybe our family we had hoped maybe our marriages would be a little bit more desirable more God-honoring than we hoped or maybe our our relationship with our parents we had this desire for something more and something gets left on the table or even when it comes to spiritual growth or our church life these hopes to be in this like joyful, blissful community, and then we face conflict or, or, or just a tough season, and we're left, wait, I thought this was supposed to be just like, the Lord called us to this, and up and to the right, and everything's going to be honky door. We, we, we find points in our life where, where we experience this kind of letdown. Now, a, a crucial part of life, I would even say a crucial part of discipleship, is learning what to do with that. When those things come across our plate, when the Lord brings us into a season like this, how do we reckon with that kind of disappointment or with that kind of anticlimax? Now, that's eventually what we're going to get to this morning, and and before, we're going to take kind of the scenic route to get there, because there are a lot of things that I want to highlight as we make our way through the the, the tail end of the third chapter of Ezra, Um, and and before we dive into that, I want to invite you to join me in asking for God's help as we dig into this text. So please uh, pray for me as I pray for you. Father God, you are the God of history. You have been at work uh, through all time and space. You've been mindful of your people. You've called us as as Christians um, to the work uh, uh, of your hands to to see what it is you are doing and to take part in that. And and part of the journey is is experiencing letdown or experiencing things that we thought would be one way and and you have other things in mind. And so with this this sense of of disappointment or maybe anti-climax in the back of our minds, God, we want to see what your will is for us in those things. And so, would you give us a perspective that sort of takes us out of that, um, this sort of narrow view that we have, and lift us up into the heavens to see, uh, see history from from your perspective, from from this the scope uh, of of all time and through all space of of the wonderful work that you are doing, God, and how we get to be a part of that? I pray that um, in this as we take this, these detours through this, the word this morning, would you help us just open up our eyes and unstop our ears? Would it soften our hearts to receive what it is for us this morning, God? And would your word be to us a, a, a light unto our, our feet? Um, would, it, would it guide us? Would it provide this template, this vision for our lives as, as individuals, as family members, as part of the church family, as people of, of the, the Quad Cities, and help us to um, desire your will And to live into that, to your praise and according to your glorious grace, we ask these things uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. As we preach through Ezra and Nehemiah, um, it's a unique genre of scripture. There's different types of genres of scripture. Maybe you're familiar with this idea. Um, there are some books that are, are epistles, so they're letters that are written typically very instructive of, hey, here's, here's how you ought to live in light of uh, the gospel. Ephesians is a book like that that we just came out of not too long ago. Um, there are books that are, that are poetry, wisdom literature, like the Psalms, um, Proverbs, wisdom literature, Job, wisdom literature. Um, but this kind of genre that we're in with Ezra and Nehemiah is a histor- historical narrative. It's a narrative that's grounded in history, real history, not this sort of detached world uh, uh, apart from ours, but a, a, a real place that we've seen this before already, a real place with real people in a real time domain. And, and each chapter, one of the challenges of preaching through um, historical, historical narrative is that each chapter sort of builds on the next. So in order to understand what's going on in chapter 3, you have to understand what happened in chapter 2 and chapter 1. And this is like Lego blocks that just keep on, on building here. And so if you are just joining with us, rather than just jumping in blindly, I'd like to bring you up to speed with what's been going on in this story here uh, through the book of Ezra. This book opens up with Ezra, with Israel, um, who God's people, God's chosen people, that go way back to Abraham. Um, they are they were living in Jerusalem, the city of God, um, and, and what happened was they, they were living a life of unfaithfulness, rebellion against God. They weren't worshiping. They were not honoring God the way that they were intended to do. They had a series of bad kings um, who led the people astray into idolatry and rebellion. And what happens is God sends judgment upon his people. God disciplines his people by bringing in this foreign nation of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar and his army, and they conquer the city of Jerusalem. They, they devastate the city, all the walls knocked over, the homes, the buildings all destroyed, and, and most importantly, the temple of God is ransacked. All of, all of the, the, the property from the temple, the furniture, um, the, the vessels, the, the golden bulls and lampstands and all the things that were of, of most importance to God in the house of God gets swept away and the people of God are taken away, at least the, uh, what, what they call the, the mighty men of valor get taken away into Babylonian exile, 500, away, 500 miles away from their home. And for 50 years, God's people are living in this exile. They have no real homeland. They don't get to worship the way that they're meant to worship. The, the, uh, the temple is, is ransacked. All of the things that sort of would, would be a, uh, a gravitational pull in their life is basically now they're living in zero gravity. They're, they're detached. Um, they're floating around. They're, they're aimless. They, they're lacking direction. And, and then on top of that, they're getting pulled into this pagan culture. And what happens as they're living in Babylonian exile, God stirs up in the heart of King Cyrus, who is the king of Persia, who just uh, about a year before uh, overtook the Babylonian empire. And now the people uh, who were once in Babylonian exile are now under Persian rule of, of King Cyrus. God stirs up in this, the heart of a pagan king to issue a decree that God's people, the people of God, uh, who says the God of heaven and earth would return back to Jerusalem and to rebuild a home for this God. And we see this pattern here in chapter one where God is, is stirring up. Before anything happens, before anything materializes, before anybody does anything, God takes action and begins stirring up in the heart of the people. It's time to move. So King Cyrus takes actions, issues this decree, sends the people of Jerusalem back home, so that they would rebuild the temple in honor of God so they could worship right. And then on top of that, God stirs up in the heart of some of the exiles for them to leave whatever comfortable life that they've built here in Babylon and go back home and rebuild from the ground, I mean, like worse than ground zero. It's not just like you've got a blank slate, but you've got all this rubble that you've got to move out of the way in order to rebuild this temple, this city, this culture. And what's interesting here as they move out of Babylonian exile, And they move into uh, what is the promised land, back to the city of Jerusalem. What we see here in the physical return of the Israelites, is is, it's mirroring a spiritual return that they're making toward God. So from a position of arrogance and rebellion, of idolatry, which has brought upon them this this type of judgment, um, this discipline from the Lord, they have turned back to God and are returning not only to the city, but they're returning To God Himself. And we see this because one of the the, the, the very first thing that they do when they arrive in in Jerusalem is they begin to build an altar. And what this tells us is that there is a priority upon worship. They come back in, and before building homes and, and doing this, you know, like taking care of themselves, they say, Okay, we've got to get our hearts straight. And so they build this altar and they start offering these burnt sacrifices and for a long stretch, I mean, it's a massive altar and it's out in the open for a long stretch. There's just smoke continually rising up to the heavens. They're they're offering these sacrifices to the Lord. Their, Their worship has been reoriented rightly. And what this shows is this priority of worship among God's people. Worship matters. Worship, well, you could even say that worship is the end goal of everything. I have, when I write my sermons, I have a template that I use, and every heading is is a reminder for me. The main goal of this sermon is to help people worship Jesus more. That's the whole game, the whole point of your existence is to worship Jesus more. So this is priority placed upon worship as God's people, and this is actually why we begin every week right here in this sanctuary together. Sunday is the beginning, the first day of the week. We begin our week with worship. We're reorienting ourselves to the reality of God and his kindness toward us, understanding who he is and who we are and how he has been kind to us. And when we neglect God, it it brings about hardship. That's exactly what we see about this this Babylonian exile. They neglected God. They did not worship him rightly. And for 50 years, they get swept away into exile in this this very unfamiliar land. And and one of the things um, that Jeremiah says is is that when we worship God rightly, when when we set the priority on worship, when we see God for who he is and respond uh, appropriately, worship brings about blessing. Not only are we blessing God but, but it, it works favorable for us. There, there's um, I don't like to say it like this, but I'm going to have to. There's some sort of a kickback. There's a blessing that comes back to us as we worship. This is what Jeremiah says in, in, in chapter 4. He says, if you return, O Israel, declares the Lord, to me, you should return. If you remove your detestable things from my presence and you do not waver, and if you swear as the Lord lives in truth, in justice, and in righteousness, Then the nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him they shall glory. There's this this thing that it's like a boomerang back. The praise goes out to God. We bless the name of the Lord, and we see this blessings. The nations shall bless themselves in him. We saw this last week. Pastor Rob highlighted this, the the blessing that comes back to us or, or the payoff of worship. So we see this unification. The, the, the people of Israel moved into Jerusalem as one man. They had a singular vision. They were there to worship God, to build the temple, to, to restore what was ruined. They, they see this blessing of atonement as the sacrifices are offered. They, they know that their sins are placed upon these animals, and God washes them away. And then they see the blessing of covenant Covenant assurance. That because of the sacrifices, they're reminded of their standing with God is secure. Now, this is wonderful. This is, this is a high moment. This is, this is like a, this would be a, if if uh, the people of, of Israel had a highlight reel, like on, on Instagram or something, this would be up there. This is a, a top-notch moment. The people of God moving back in, worshiping God. This is a wonderful moment, but there is still work to do there because they have been sent by God indirectly. I mean, like God is the one who stirred up for Cyrus to give this decree. They've been stirred up ultimately by God to go back and to build him a home in Jerusalem. That was the mission. That's what they were there for, to build a house for the God of heaven and earth right there in Jerusalem. And as they're offering these sacrifices, verse six says that that they, they began to offer these burnt offerings to the Lord And then they realized the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So the job that they had before them really hadn't started. I mean, the worship is good, but the job of rebuilding still needed to get a start. And so what we see in verse 7 is is the people of Israel who have returned, they gave money to the masons and the carpenters. They gave food and drink and oil uh, to the Sidonians and to the tyrants to bring cedar trees from Lebanon. From the sea and to Joppa, according to the giant, to the grant, excuse me, giant, to the grant that they had from Cyrus, the king of Persia. So what we see is the people of God, who have already made great sacrifice to travel 500 miles to go back to be part of this rebuilding process, they then take a collection. And they've been sent with money and gold and and all the fine vessels from from the people who were back in Babylon, and King Cyrus sent that stuff along with them. But here among the people, there is this offering that is collected. What they're doing is they take the resources that God has put in their hands and they aim that at the mission of God to build this temple. Now this is a picture of what your tithes and offerings do here at Sacred City. It's where we take the the blessing, the resources that God has given us as his people, and we aim them at God's mission to make disciples, how we say it at Sacred City, well God's mission is that his glory would fill the earth as waters cover the seas. But how we say it here at Sacred City to make disciples, plant churches, and renew the city. So when you give, when you take your resources, you're aiming them at the mission of God here. Now, we see a similar pattern um, back in the building of the tabernacle in, in Exodus. Um, we see it when a similar pattern of a collection that takes place um, when the temple, when Solomon builds his temple in, in Exodus 35, Moses takes up a generous collection from the people of God, they're out in the wilderness. They had plundered the Egyptians. They had all kinds of resources at their fingertips. And, and Moses says, hey, let's, let's bring it in and make God a beautiful place to live. And he's got this very clear um, template of what it's supposed to look like. And he supplies the craftsmen with the resources they need to make God this temporary dwelling place, which is called the tabernacle. And we see similar thing with, uh, with Solomon in First Kings 5, Solomon um, has this, the spirit compels him to build God a house, a permanent dwelling place. And using the wealth and the resources of the nation of Israel, Solomon equips the, the, the masons, the skilled workers, the carpenters with what they need to make these fine and beautiful things to, fill, well, to build the temple and also to fill the temple with, with the vessels that, that, they, that God has commanded them to need. Now it's interesting here, At Solomon, it says that um, Solomon brings in the cedars of Lebanon, and and it's it's an interesting connection that happens here in Ezra chapter 3, where we see that they too are bringing in cedar trees from Lebanon. They're importing something, something that's not right there at, at their disposal. Now, this might not seem like an important detail about what kind of wood they use to build the temple, but it actually is a very significant detail. Uh, It's one that can easily be overlooked. In fact, there are many significant details in this passage that are often overlooked. Like, For example, in verse 8, it tells us that this this work of building begins in the second month of the year. This is of the Jewish calendar called E-R. And the second month of the year follows the first month of the year. Imagine that. But in the first month of the year, what happens is is that the first month of the year is called Nisan. Um, That is the month where Passover was celebrated. The people of Israel would celebrate what God had done to deliver them out of the the grip of Pharaoh, the the enslavement that they had in Egypt, and free them, bring them into this new land with the hopes of the promised land on the other side of the wilderness. Now, what's significant about this? Why why have the same starting date? Why start the building project on the same month that Solomon started building? Oh, wait, I didn't say that. But, But Solomon also started building the first temple in the same month. So, so there's parallels here. So um, following the Passover, building the same month of Solomon, what's significant about that? First of all, it shows that God's people are story-formed. God's people are story-formed. God's people are rooted in history. History is a ledger of God's faithfulness throughout all time and all space through his, uh, to his people. And so these are people who remember the works of God. They, they, they let the stories of their forefathers shape and inform their current reality right then and there. So their story formed. But the second piece of this that's significant is that they just had their own kind of exodus out of Babylonian captivity. So the people of God returning to Jerusalem are having the second exodus. And they've been delivered from the Babylonian grips to come and to build a house for God, so that they would worship him, which is exactly why God sent Mer- uh, Moses to deliver his people from Pharaoh. If you recall, if, if Exodus, it's, I, I want to bring my people in to worship me, out to the wilderness to worship me. So we see this parallel here between the Exodus story and, and the second Exodus here uh, uh, of the return from the, um, uh, uh, of the Israelites. And with that, When God delivers his people and brings them to a new place, what happens is there's this exuberant worship that comes out on the other side of God's deliverance. You see this in Exodus 15. They cross the Red Sea, and there's this huge psalm in the middle of of this Exodus story. They've been delivered, and they start to sing. Worship happens. They set up an altar to remember the kindness and the goodness and faithfulness of God and his power and his might. And we see the same thing happen Here, with the Israelites, as they return to Jerusalem, they come, and on the other side of God's deliverance, there's this exuberant worship, right, which is taking place through the sacrifices. Now, as Christians, we have a deliverance that outpaces every other kind of deliverance that we see in the Old Testament, all of the other kinds of deliverances in the Old Testament are meant to point forward to the kind of deliverance that we have in Christ Jesus as Christians. Therefore, having received this deliverance from sin and death and the grave through the blood of Christ, Christians ought to worship zealously as we become story form people. As we remember the kindness of God throughout all generations, as we recall the gospel week in and week out, day in and day out, moment by moment, worships should bubble up from within us because the history points to God's faithfulness. So there's significance in all these details. Now, what about the wood? Going back to the wood, what's so significant about the wood? What difference does it make? Why not just say, listen, they were using these cheap warp 2 by 4s from Menards, right? That's what, that's what they had at their fingertips, so that's what they use. Well, the reason why the scriptures point out in, in both occurrences why they use cedars of Lebanon is because the cedars of Lebanon is the choicest wood that you could find. The cedars of Lebanon is this, it's this premium material. There, there's no other kind of wood. There's no other sort of, of natural resource um, in the wood variety that you can get that would be superior to the cedars of Lebanon. So here we're seeing that God's house cannot just be built with scrap wood. God's house is not meant to be this little shanty like, hey, well, we, we, you know, it's like in the spirit of, of, of Cain. Of, well, I gave what I had left over. And that's what was there. And I had a couple scraps of two-by-fours and this warped, you know, particle board. And that's, I guess, what we're gonna use to build the house of God. No, no, no. What it shows us is there is a premium on the the resources that God wants to be used in his house. Now, if, if kings have exquisite palaces, the temple of God ought to outpace them. And this is what it's showing. These premium products means premium prices. And what that tells us is that God is worth it. See, God is worthy of having the best in his dwelling place. Now, I'm not advocating for a church to go under in order to install marble floors in the bathrooms. That's, that's not the case here. But there is something to be said about the beauty of the place that God wants to dwell. See, beauty and excellence matter to God. God. Profoundly, and I think there's oftentimes that we overlook this: that that beauty and excellence are meant to be pillars among the church, not just in the physical, in in the church building, but also among the people. Paul talks about uh, women adorning themselves not not uh, with clothing on the outside, but but what is the inside: a, a pure and sincere heart, one that is faithful to the Lord. He talks about men. not not being concerned about image or the fear of man, but but having this purity, this this excellence. Be virtuous, he calls us to. But this gets reflected in the physical realm as he calls his people to excellent. Therefore, be excellent as your father is excellent. This is reflected in the physical space as well. And I think this is one thing that the Catholics got right. They nailed the aesthetics of worship. If you step into a cathedral I mean, if you step in, I was able to go to New York in high school, and there, uh, I don't even know what the, the cathedral is. I, magnificent. You step in there, those huge doors open up, and you just feel like you're entering into, it's like a portal to another universe. The, the huge steeple that, that goes up and, and kind of draws your vision up, and that, that's why churches are designed to have these tall steeples. It's meant to optically move your eyes from what's right in front of you up. The beauty, the artwork, the, the ornate... um arches and the beauty that's just implanted in the building. It's meant to both reflect the, the, the reality that God is worthy to have a house that looks this beautiful, but also for the worshiper, it's meant to bring us into a place of worship. When you, It's to be conducive to worship. The place itself sort of sets, sets the tone for worship. And we see this in the tabernacle. We see this with the temple. There there are very clear instructions that God cares about the details. God wants to make sure that things are made with excellence and precision, and and it's a beautiful place because beauty matters to God. Excellence matters to God. Now, while Solomon bankrolled the first temple with, with the resources of Israel, this new temple, the second temple, is built on Cyrus's dime. We see this at the end of verse verse 7. It says that uh, all this stuff was sort of collected, all of all of the wood imported was according to the grant that they had from Cyrus king of Persia. So here we have this pagan king who's offering resources to build God's home. Now, this also is meant to invoke the story of Exodus once again, because remember, as as the Israelites left Exodus, they plundered the Egyptians, they took their gold, like the the Egyptians were like, here, take this gold and get out of here, please. And they took that, they had the wealth of Egypt, and and, and they took that, and they used it to build the tabernacle. See, this means um, that God always gets his hands on what belongs to him, all all of, the, all of the material in this world belongs to God. When God desires to be worshipped in this way, he brings that in. Now as we see the supplies gathered, we see uh, this crew. We've got, it talks about all these men that are together to build. Um, underneath the leadership of Zerubbabel and Yeshua, it says they make a beginning. I think that's verse 8. They make their beginning together with the rest of the kinsmen and the priests and the Levites, all who had come to Jerusalem from captivity. And they appointed Levites. This is verse uh, 9. They appointed Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And so they start working. They begin laying this foundation to the temple. Hard work. They're moving earth and stone. They're getting their hands dirty, their bodies ache, their backs are sore, they've got bloody knuckles, sweat pouring down their brow. What are they doing? They're doing the Lord's work. They're, they're doing what God has called them to do. This is a vocation. This is a call. That's what the word vocation is. It's voca means calling. They've been called. They've been stirred up to do this. And, and what happens here as we see them doing this physical work, this breaks the misconception that God's work is only heart work, that God's work is only book work, right? The, the, the idea of the ministry being like a pastor tucked away in a study, reading the scriptures, doing all this study, meeting with people, like that, and like that's all that ministry can be. That's all that, that working for the Lord can look like. This blows up that misconception. Here we have real physical labor, and and those also who are supervising those who are working. It's being the work of the Lord. That's what it's communicating. And what this does, it draws this connection. As they work on the the temple, the connection is formed, clearly, between work and worship. That what you do for a vocation, what your job is, is meant to be a form of worship that you render to God. Worship doesn't just happen here on Sunday mornings. From 9 to 5, your work, worship to the Lord. This is why Paul says in Colossians 3, whatever you do, work heartily. as for the Lord and not men. It's an invitation to worship. Come work. And worship. Let your work be worship. And, and here's how. Let me let me make a couple of connections here. Here's how your work becomes worship. Number one, it, Paul says it here in Colossians three: work heartily. What's he saying? I think two things. To say work heartily, uh, it, it means work hard, like put your heart behind it. And give yourself to the task that's before you. Even if it's not the most glorious thing, even if it's not the the thing that you want to do for the rest of your life, give yourself to that thing and work hard. So there's a sense of working hard, but also this resoluteness in working heartily. Your heart be behind it. Even if it's just for the moment, put your heart behind it. Be resolute in what you do, knowing that your work matters. What you do matters. What you do at work matters to God. And the second thing of how we turn our work into worship is by producing something excellent. Right? Going back to the temple and how it was constructed. Do what you do with excellence. Produce excellent systems. Offer excellent service, create excellent products. See, Christians ought to be the hardest working people in the city because our work is worship. It's not arbitrary, it's worship unto God. Christians ought to be the top producers in our city because we are setting out to honor God with the product or service or good that we offer to the people in our city in honor of God. See, what we do in our work is meant to be done unto the Lord. This is exactly what's happening. As they work, as they do this physical labor, as they supervise others building the temple, their work is worship. They are working unto the Lord. And as they lay the foundation, they they get it all spread out. We see this big worship service erupts here in verse 10. It says that when the builders laid the, the foundation of the temple, the Lord, the uh, uh, to, of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, and with the cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, the God, to, to the Lord God, for He is good. They're quoting, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. Now, when you hear this, you have to think about a parade. This is a parade. This is not some little, hey, we're gonna, we're gonna huddle up and sing kumbaya just at a very quiet campfire level. This is a parade. They're wearing the marching band uniforms. They're banging the cymbals. The trumpets are howling. Everybody's singing. There's this responsive thing that's going on as they see the foundation of the temple has been laid. Now, as they worship, we see this eruption of worship. We have to notice that they don't worship in the way that they see fit. They're actually, we've seen it twice now in the way that they offer sacrifices, it's in accordance with the law of Moses, the man of God, and now they're offering their praises in accordance with what King David has instructed before right? They sing responsively in praising, giving thanks to God. This is according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they're actually quoting Psalms here, Psalm 118, Psalm 136. There's other places where these words are re- repeated verbatim, for he is good. They're singing to God, for God is good. His steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. Now this is a joyous occasion for them. The work has started. They're making progress. It's going great. And the people, their lips are loaded with worship and praise. And it's getting rowdy. It's getting rowdy. It's a loud festival for them. And you think, oh, yes, finally, they're back. Make Jerusalem great again. They did it. (laughs) Jerusalem is great again. But that's not the case, actually. There's some truth to that. Things are trending in a good direction. But there's a, a mixed response to the laying of the temple foundation. It says that all the people shouted with great shout when they praised the Lord because of the foundation of the house was laid. But listen to this, verse 12. But many of the priests and the Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men, who had seen the first house so they, they saw the first temple they saw Solomon's temple that was built and they wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid though many shouted for joy so that the people could not be distinguished they could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping for the people shouted with a great shout and the sound was heard from far away so here we see this this is a mixed reaction here on one hand, you've got people celebrating in a parade and joyful, you know, exclamation. And then the old heads are like, they're weeping. They're sad. This isn't, you know, a misconception about this would be, well, it's tears of joy. No, it's not. They're They're grieving. They're grieving. They're they're lamenting and mourning because there's this letdown that they've experienced, having having experienced and seen the first temple of Solomon and all of its glory and all of its splendor and all of its beauty. They look at what's before them, and they're experiencing letdown. Now, why is this? Why are the old heads all in their feelings? Isn't this a great thing? Isn't the temple like we're making progress? Isn't this this excellent? Shouldn't we all be rejoicing? Well, and we think, well, they're just being too crotchety. They're being upset about nothing. You know, they're always living in the glory days, right? Just cheer up, old guy. Well, there might be some truth to that, but but there's also a real reason why they're lamenting. In fact, there's many reasons why they would lament. First of all, they're standing in the midst of a city that lies in ruins. And in the city that's lying in ruins, right at the moment, they have no king. There's no Messiah. There's no one that's, that's leading the charge for God's people, that, that one that was promised that was going to restore all things and make all things right and bring beauty back to the lands where the deserts would be like lush gardens. We don't see that at all. We see heaps of rock and stone and, and fires burning. The people aren't there. The people of Israel aren't there where they're meant to be. Half of them are in, in Babylonian exile, well, and the other half are, are in some other kind of exile. There's just a desolate land. The people are not there to worship God with them, all of them. But the two primary reasons why the, these old guys who have seen um, the, the, the first temple are weeping is because, is because, number one, they know that this new temple that they're building will not be as glorious as Solomon's temple. The stones, the debris that they're moving out of the way are are better stones than the stones that they're bringing on. The ornateness, the the resources that that they had at their fingertips when Solomon built, they they do have resources, but not to the same extent. There's not that priority. Solomon made it the, the one focus of the people of Israel to build this house for the Lord. And now Cyrus is saying, yeah, go do this, but... So, so are a bunch of other nations that have their own pagan gods, and so he's doing the same thing with them. So they look at this, and they're like, this, there's no way that this temple is going to um, be as glorious as Solomon's temple. And a big piece of that, understanding this, number two, is that the Ark of the Covenant is missing. The Ark of the Covenant... Was kept in the holy of holies, the most sacred of places. Is the place that the ark of the covenant resembled the presence of God. When when Solomon built the temple, the, the holy of holies, um, they 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 uh, they took the ark of the covenant that Moses had made, and they put it in this spot. And and on top of the ark of the covenant was the mercy seat, where God would would be like he, he would have a physical manifestation there. And how that got demonstrated or how that was, was expressed was that a pillar of cloud. It was the glory cloud came down as the, temple, as the Ark of the Covenant went into the temple. And there the people of knew that the presence of God was here in this place. And now these old guys are realizing, yes, we're, we're making great work here. We're laying the foundation of the temple, but the Ark of the Covenant is missing And still missing, right? Contrary to those Indiana Jones films. It's not in a warehouse somewhere. Where is the Ark of the Covenant? Who knows? And so they weep, right? Because it's one thing to, what good is a house that nobody moves into? Right? That's what they're doing. What good is a house that God doesn't move into? so they, they weep, and it really reflects what Moses says in Exodus 33 when he's talking about going uh, onto a new land. He says to God, listen, if your presence doesn't go with us, I don't want to go. The reason why I'm here is because you're here with me. And so that same sense of lament of, man, is God here? Is he coming back? Is he with us? That's what's going on with these older folks here, the priests and the Levites, the heads of the households. Now, maybe this, this feeling of setback and disappointment is familiar to you, that you hope for this good and noble thing, and it never materialized. Or maybe it materialized, but not it wasn't what you hoped it would be. It left you wanting, whether it's your marriage or your job or your family, your health, a friendship, your spiritual growth, something about that, it, it, whether it materialized to some degree or not, left you in a place where, wow. Well, feels kind of like an anticlimax. This doesn't hit the spot like I thought it was going to. See, that's exactly what they were experiencing with the second temple. And what this tells us is the second temple was not able to satisfy God's people. It left them wanting. Now, when we experience this, there are basically two Um, courses of actions that we can take when we we have these unmet expectations, when it feels like there's been anticlimax, when there's something that maybe is a setback. The first thing that we do that we often just naturally drift into is we get jaded. We get this sense of disappointment. Maybe we feel entitled to have that thing that that should come back to us. We get disappointed, and and that disappointment takes root, and it, it stirs up joylessness and bitterness and anger, and what happens is it slowly... Um, eats away at you. You sit and you pout. You shake your fist at God. God, why couldn't you give me this good thing that I wanted? Where are, even like that, where are you? Do you not care about me? Can you not see, why aren't you coming? Like, why can't I have that thing? And if you let that go for an extended period of time, it's gonna eat you up. It's gonna be its own kind of slow death where it eats you from the inside out. The other option that we have is to let sadness run its course. Sure, we we grieve when there are grieving worthy things to grieve over. We let sadness run its course. And then in in the rubble of uh, anti-climax or unmet expectations, we let ourselves be propelled into the future hope that awaits us. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 says that Christians don't grieve as those who have no hope. For Christians to sit and grieve and to wallow and to, to be stuck in, in what seems like a dismal place that is not congruent with the hope that we've been called to in Christ Jesus. See, this, this grief is meant to lead us into hope, to mourn what is not and be able to see the future where God has taken this thing that's meant to be a shadow that points forward to something even better. It's where we have this ability to to sort of acknowledge that this thing, though it might have been a good thing, though it might have been an an honorable and noble thing to hope for, this thing cannot satisfy me because it was not meant to satisfy me. In fact, it would be foolish of us to settle for that thing because God always has something that's so much better than what we thought. This is why C.S. Lewis says that if I find myself... Uh, If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. It's this realization of what's here in front of me, it's only an appetizer of, of what lies ahead. See, as Christians, we know that there's something greater, there's something superior on the horizon. The temple in Jerusalem was meant to be a shadow, and and even that shadow that they were rebuilding right now, later on, not too far uh, down the road after this, King Herod will come by and and sort of move all what they were doing and kind of try to build his own better temple. And then that temple gets destroyed in 70 AD. See, the temple was meant to point forward to something better. All that we hope for, all that they hope for, and long for, will be fulfilled in the New Jerusalem. See, this is this is what we have on the horizon. This is what our future hope is. Exodus, or excuse me, Revelation twenty-one, one of the best chapters of the Bible. It speaks of the city that comes down from heaven and it has the glory of God. It's so radiant, so beautiful. It's made of the choicest materials. It's it's made of this gold streets that are somehow transparent. It's this this dazzling diamond. All of the best are brought in. Even, Even the best of the cultures, the glory of the nations, are brought into this new city. Everything that is excellent is represented here. It's this glorious city but as John is, is expressing this vision that he has as the city comes down out of heaven, what he tells us in, um, in verse 22 of chapter 21 of Revelation, he says, and I saw no temple in the city. Well, wait a minute. I thought you said that there was a, another temple coming. I thought, I thought that those temples back then were meant to point forward to a greater temple. Well, here's the thing. There's no temple in the city. It says, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. There's no temple in the new heavens and new earth because the whole new heavens new earth, the new Jerusalem, is a temple where God's presence dwells there with his people. And what we see here, check this out. In God's presence, all of the weeping is consoled in this new heavens new earth. Check this out. Verses one through six. John says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. So, so those shadows that were there, they pass away and the substance arrives. Now hear this. This is good news for those who weep, those who sit in those moments of disappointment. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Now check this out. Now th- this, is, this is a week where I'm like blown away by the intricacies of the scripture, how this giant web that just keeps coming back to it's incredible. Think of this. When, when, when John says this is a place where there will be no more tears, no more death. No mourning, no crying, no pain. What that means when he says there's no more death, that means there's no more sacrifice. Because that's what the sacrifice is. These burnt offerings are animals slain so that people would be preserved, so that their sins would be imputed upon the animal and they would be called, counted righteous. Now, why, are there, why is there no more sacrifice? Why is there no more death in the new heavens new earth? It's because Jesus was the once and for all sacrifice for the people of God. In the new heavens, new earth, there's no reason to offer sacrifices because Jesus has already done it. He's paid the price. All of our sins have been placed upon him, just as we heard this morning in our confession the absolution. He became sin, who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. And all who are cleansed by the blood of the Lamb gain access to, these new, to the new heavens and new earth, to the new Jerusalem. They gain access to the Father, to, to, to be in his presence. Now, this is our resurrection hope. This is what sustains, sustains us through the ups and downs of life. Because even here, when it comes back to, uh, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment, what this is pointing to is, is saying that your desires, what you crave, what you long for, here in the new heavens and new earth, here in Jesus Christ, will ultimately be satisfied once and for all. And it's not because you achieved it. He says it's without payment. It's because Jesus achieved this for you. This is our resurrection hope. This is what gives us the, the buoyancy of the gospel. Gives us the ability that even when things don't feel right, or maybe feel like an anticlimax, it gives us this ability to tether ourselves into the future. The, the reality that Jesus will come again and make all things new, set all things right once and for all that we will be with him. Now, as we look forward to that reality of being with God as his people, we, he'll be our God, we'll be his people, right now, we have also received the Holy Spirit as a guarantee that this will come to fruition. It's not just this pipe dream that, well, fingers crossed, hopefully it comes around. God has already given us his presence in the Holy Spirit that when we become a Christian, moves into our lives. Now, the interesting thing, when Paul talks about the church being the temple of God, the house of God, It's these building bricks, the individual members that are brought together through the Spirit that holds us all together. And so in the interim, until we reach the new heavens and new earth, God has made his dwelling place among the church here and now in and of his people. And this is not because of our doing. This is not because of the work of our own hands, but it's because of the work of Christ and what he has done. Now, if this is the case, church, if this is the case, where, where the Israelites in, in, in um, Ezra chapter three let out this loud shout, right? If they're worshiping, they've got this big parade going, if they're shouting for joy, so much so that, that the joy sort of uh, overarchs the, the, the grumbling or the sadness, the grief that's there. If this is the case for them with a temple that really won't eventually satisfy them, how much more should it be true for us that we are unleashing our praises to the Lord because we have the gospel, See, we, we have the, real, the, the revelation of God has been made known to us so when we say, for he is good, we look to the cross and we know for certain that he is good. When we say, the steadfast of the Lord endures forever toward Israel and to all generations, we know that is for certain because God will not leave us or forsake us that Jesus is with us until the end of the age as he promises in the Great Commission. So this means, Christians, that our worship should be off the chain. It should get rowdy in here. Giving our worship and praises to the Lord. I mean, if you want to bring a drug, I'm waiting for you to bust out your trumpet one of these days and just blast from the back, right? Get some cymbals. I'm just kidding. Let's not do that. <laughs> Maybe, get up here and do it. We'll, we'll organize ourselves a little. But we should have this, this zeal in our worship because we have experienced an, an even greater deliverance from Lord Jesus Christ. And it's not just here on Sunday either. Let's, let's, let's tie this back into the work that we do throughout the week. Right? Our work should be hard and excellent work that gives praise to the God who is worthy. Not working unto man, but unto the Lord. See, this is our contribution in advancing the kingdom of heaven here in, in the Quad Cities as it is in heaven. Like, th- I think that's why Jesus calls us to pray that way on earth as it is in heaven. And as we labor, it's not to gain the kingdom, but it's to acknowledge that Jesus has brought the kingdom once and for all in and then incrementally inching us nearer and nearer to us. So in this sense, we can say, like we sung earlier today, it's not yet, not, not an I, not, not um, yet not I, but Christ in me. It's the Spirit who's producing this worship in us. And as we do this, we build a church that is a preview, not not just a building. I'm talking about a church family, a culture, a a a societal, uh, a a, a relational ecosystem of grace. We build that kind of a church that gives a preview to the rest of the world what is to come in the new heavens and new earth. And, And their lips, as parched as they are, start longing for the living water that Jesus offers. So this is why we do what we do. This is why we want to renew our city. This is why we want to make disciples. This is why we want to realize that Jesus is here. He has not forsaken us, and he's going to bring us into the new heavens and new earth. And we have great hope in that. And as we live in that, we live in such a way that others might be drawn into the conspicuous, because that's what it was. it was. It was rowdy worship of Jesus. So that can people, people can see that God is worthy. He's worth it. He is the one who formed the heavens and the earth and everything therein. Only he is worthy of worship and praise. Father, we thank you for your grace to us, that we are not people that are, well, we're not itching to build a new temple here, because we have found Christ, our our real temple whose body was destroyed and three days later was resurrected and brought up, and as Christ lives, the temple, the, the household of God is established among the church, God. And we ask that as, as you do that good work, would you bring us deeper uh, into the revelation of the gospel. Give us a buoyancy that as we face life's disappointments, that we can anchor ourselves in the future hope that is to come. To know that you are right now near to us. You're, you are present and we are longing for the day that that, that, that presence would not be mediated, that, that sort of this unrestrained presence of forever being um, before your face, Coram Deo. And so would you anchor us in that hope and let that hope lead us through these present moments. And this, this meal that we take right now, um, help it to be a reminder to us, not only of Christ's body broken and his blood shed to, to cleanse us of our sins, but but as a foretaste of what's to come, that the day when we sit down at the marriage supper of the Lamb in the new city of Jerusalem, the beauty gleaming where you've cleansed us, that you've made us a beautiful, spotless bride that you say that you're making us to be, and we get to revel in that future and hope for that new day because you are making all things new, and it begins with us. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. In your name we pray.